1: did it. I finally did it. The deed for the land I bought today. I bought my own property. It's mine. It's really mine. My name, Bridget Mason, Biddy as they call me. <laughs> It took a while, but it's mine. It's really mine. It's something I can call my own and give to my children, my babies, and their babies. It's something that nobody can take away from me. A place for the family to grow up and for us all to feel safe. I can't wait to put a house there with a big porch like the ones on the south. That was the only way we could escape those humid summer nights in Mississippi. The white families and us, the people, been a slave, you worked day and night, and you did whatever the family told you to do. Mostly it was the children. Yes, indeed, the children. Miss Rebecca's brother sent me to help her take care of her four little ones. She had another one on the way, too. I almost had no time to take care of my own babies, my Ellen and my Anne. They were but seven and three years old back then. They had to help take care of Miss Rebecca's children, too. Back then, the rich white folk, they they bought slaves about the same age as their children, and to help and have them grow up together. That was a high status for slaves back then, but sometimes we still felt like we were pets. Miss Rebecca, she was well off in South Carolina. She had a body servant on her own named Hannah, but here in Mississippi, they were poor. (laughs) Miss Rebecca missed Hannah her company mostly. guess that's why when her father died, they bought Hannah and her three children. They came to live with us about a year after I got there. And that Master Robert, you know, he was a piece of work. He always had some plan to make things better, but usually they got worse. He joined up there with a Mormon church and then a year after told us we were going to move to their homeland in Utah. We had to cross Texas and the Rocky Mountains to Salt Lake City. They packed up their wagons, but us slaves, we had to walk the whole 2,000 miles. Driving their cattle and making camp for them wherever they chose to settle. But we had to find a place outside wherever we could. And sometimes Master Robert came and, and slept with me. We were there for a few years before Master Robert came up with yet another plan to join up with the Mormons and go to start a new colony in South Carolina. Well no, it was it was Southern California and California had just become a state. We had to cross that awful desert in the Sierra Nevada mountains. And boy, were we tired. But then we looked up and we saw that beautiful valley <laughs> where they planned to settle. And we built forts and and farmlands, and eventually it became a nice town. Master Robert was raising cattle, and I thought we would have a nice home there for a while, but then something happened, and Master Robert was all bent out of shape, and then he came in one day and said that we were moving back to Texas. And when you're a slave, you do whatever the family tells you to do. Except we weren't slaves anymore. It was legal to be a slave in Southern California. We found that out, me and my Ellen, from some of the other slaves. What could we do? We had nowhere to live and no money to live on. And that Master Robert knew that too. He started hiding from the Mormons and the law, and then he moved us about 100 miles into a canyon outside of Los Angeles. He hid us there until he could find supplies for the trip. He took my Ellen with him that day to Mr. Robert Owen's livery stable. While he was haggling over the mules, my Ellen was talking up with Mr. Owen's son, Charles, who worked there. And Charles was the one who told us that we were not slaves anymore. And he also told us what it meant if Robert took us back to that slave state of Texas. When they left the livery stable, Charles told his father about what he planned to do, and the next thing I know, Yes. The morning before we were supposed to leave to go to Texas, some people from the sheriff's came and, and they served Master Robert some legal papers. They took me and my children and Hannah and her children to the jail in Los Angeles. Mr. Owens and his and son Charles were part of that and Charles told Ellen everything would be okay, but Lord, were we scared. After a few days, we went into the courthouse and when Mrs. Rebecca and Master Robert were, and he told them he owned us. And that we had willingly left Mississippi to come to Southern California, and that he supported us, and that he treated us like family and had no control over us more than over his own children. You should have heard that. Planned to take us back to Texas, and he said that Hannah and her children were pleased to go. And I guess the judge didn't know him well enough to know what that tone of voice meant, but we did. And poor Hannah, she was in a pickle. She was about to have her baby little Henry any day now. I guess that's why the judge, he let her go back to the camp where Master Robert and Miss Rebecca were and her, her boy Lawrence, too. He told Master Robert to get a lawyer. And then he took us back to the jailhouse, and we was there for about two weeks until the trial started. And when we got to the courthouse, it was packed. I had a lawyer the first day, but he quit the second day. (coughs) Said that he was being threatened for representing us. black person wasn't allowed to testify against a white person and so I couldn't speak for myself and now I had nobody to speak for me but that Judge Hayes, he figured it all out. He had me, my Ellen and my Ann come into his chambers and he asked us our side of the story and then he asked us if we knew what it meant to go back to Texas and he said that the children who were minors would be required to stay here in Southern California, and he asked if I still wanted to go, and I said, no, sir. I would not like to be separated from my children. He asked my Ellen and Anne the same thing, and they said the same, that we would like to stay together. After a few days, we all heard what the judge said that we persons of color cannot be held in slavery or involuntary servitude and that we were free forever, forever. <laughs> he also told Master Robert some things that I never thought anybody would tell him, but they were true. And then we were free, and that good Winnie and Mr. Owens invited us, all of us, to their house in Los Angeles. But what were we to do now? But the Lord did not forget us, and he immediately opened doors for us. Mr. Owens had a neighbor, Dr. Griffin, and he heard about my experience delivering babies, and he offered me a job. And I said, yes, sir. Been a laborer. You only earned a dollar a day back then. But Mr. Griffin was offering me $2.50 a day. to do what the good Lord gave me. I've been working for Dr. Griffin for about 10 years now. 10 years. (laughs) Catching babies and nursing for folk all over town. The rich Americans and the poor Californians and some Indians too. He takes me to to the jailhouse to help out folk there too. The same jailhouse we were in for two weeks. Dr. Griffin is a good man a kind man, under all that bluster. We've seen a lot of change here in Los Angeles in the last 10 years. They're building on the south side, the American part of town, and they opened up three hotels. Most of the people who stay in those hotels are from other parts of the U.S., and they're coming to buy land here in Los Angeles. and they keep Mr. Robbins Owens' livery stable real busy, but not busier than during the Civil War when the Union camps and the barracks were being built here in Los Angeles. And Dr. Owens, he knew it was a lot of work, but he was determined to keep the business a success. I wish you were here to see this day God bless his soul. Charles owns that business now. Charles married my Ellen about two years after we got our freedom. And they both gave me the best advice. Save money so that you can buy property like they were doing. And that's exactly what I did. I made sure my family had food to eat and a nice bed to lay their heads on and a place with a roof over their head. I rented this here cottage on 1st Street. But everything else, I saved. Until today. I can't even read what's on it, but I know that this piece of paper is worth so much the best two hundred and fifty dollars I ever spent. <laughs> Listen to me sounding like Dr. Griffin and Mr. Owens. But it's true. I'm the, I'm the first black woman in Los Angeles to own property. How am I the first to do anything? I never sell this one. No, this one's mine. Those ten years were hard, but not as hard as being a slave and working for nothing. Now a reward at the end. I'm so happy. <laughs> Mama, if you're watching, I hope you're proud. They say, they used to say slaves couldn't get nothing because we couldn't read or write but now I got something I can call my own. Mama and Papa, whoever you were, I wish y'all would here to see this day. Freeze good. i got a place I can give to my children, so they can give to their children and their grandchildren that nobody can manipulate. And most importantly, a place for them to feel safe. A place where they can talk how they want and be who they want. And so they don't have to sleep on the ground with nothing to cover their head but the sky. That's all I wanted. That's how I used to live. But I'm thankful for my blessings. The open hand is blessed, that gives in abundance as it receives. That's what I live by. <laughs> The Owens, they helped us when we were in peril. And that's what I plan to do with my community. The black community here is getting bigger. There's about 60 of us now. And we come here to my place for prayer. We hope to get a church one day, God willing. (laughs) And with hard work. Yes, hard work. I worked hard, and now I got me a steak in Los Angeles. It's the first step, and there's many more to come, but now I got a path. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: This is going to be a great day. (laughs) Oh, Miss Chapman. She said she's not due for another few weeks, but I think she's due to have her baby in a day now. I'll go check in on her.
0: have with us on stage today um, Jacqueline Broxton. Jackie is one of the co-founders of the Biddy Mason Charitable Foundation, which benefits children in foster care and is part of the outreach ministry for the First AME Church. As as we know, Biddy Mason from from, um, Michelle's performance was one of the co-founders of the um, First AME Church. And to, to me, it's really a gift to have you here. We're obviously filming this after the original performance. Um, the students have left the room. It's just the three of us. Uh, but what a gift for us, because you really are an embodiment of Biddy's vision and her efforts. 140 years ago, mm-hmm. this woman uh, lived and died, and yet her legacy is still reverberating throughout our community which is incredible. So thank you for coming up. You came up from Los Angeles. Thank you for which having Which we really appreciate. And we have Michelle Hester here, um, also known as Biddy Mason. Yes. Uh, Michelle is a UC Santa Barbara senior. Uh, she's a very busy young woman. She's majoring in theater with an emphasis in community, and she's also getting her minor in English. And I will tell you that uh, Michelle pulled off this performance um, during a week when she had another major performance, which I'll tell you a little bit more about in a minute, um, as well as a very rigorous academic schedule. So it's, it ma- she made it look easy. She made it look seamless. I can tell you she put a lot of work into that, ma- into making that performance look easy. Thank so you. So we appreciate that, Michelle. You did a fantastic job. Thank you. So, Jackie, I just want to start by um, sort of dr- calling back a little bit to some of the things Michelle um, um, told us in her performance Uh, And then I'd just love to hear some of your thoughts on on some of these aspects of Biddy's personality. So in 1848, she arrives in what we now know as Salt Lake City, and she came from Mississippi. And she didn't fly Delta, right? (laughs) No. She walked 2,000 miles, which in and of itself over a two-year period would be arduous. But she didn't just walk 2,000 miles over two years. She took care of her three children. She had an infant, a 4-year-old, and a 10-year-old. Um, She also took care of other people's children, uh, and then she um, had to cook and midwife and herd the livestock and do all of these things. Um, Which, you know, if I have three things on my to do list in a day, I get upset about it, right? (laughs) But she was constantly multitasking for years. What what does that say to you about her personality, her grit, and how that served her, how that experience served her later in her life?
2: Well, for me personally, it says a couple of things. Number one, as a mother, her concern was probably her children first. I mean, she's got these three little girls. She wants to be able to give them a better life than she had, but she's probably not sure what that's going to be, given Mm -hmm. the time. Mm -hmm. Um, It was not uncommon. You know, you hear these stories about the pioneers. It was not uncommon for people to have these arduous journeys. But I think to be A black woman in that time frame to have to leave Mississippi and go someplace where you don't know where you're going, you don't know what to expect, it had to be terrifying. So I think the thing that always stands out to me is her determination. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Regardless of what happened, she was going to make it work for her family.
0: Yeah, it's kind of putting that one foot before the other. Um, not mindlessly and fatalistically, but saying, listen, I don't know about tomorrow, but I know about
2: today. These are the cards I've been dealt, right. and I've got to work I'm with I'm going to play them. the best
0: hand I yeah. can play with those cards. I, I, I totally agree with you. Um, so just continuing on with her story. So in 1851, Robert Smith, who was the person that you know held her in bondage, uh, he decided to move to California. Um, but it wasn't until 1856 when Smith tried to leave California mm-hmm. That, that was really, in a way, Biddy's big break. Yeah. Um, I, I hate to think about it, but she probably would have remained in servitude if, if he hadn't kind of panicked a little bit. Um, and so it was about a five-year period where she was living in a free state yet was still um, in servitude. And then she challenged, um, challenged Mr. Smith in court. Now, she, her, this is something I find very fascinating. And I'm not an expert, in, so correct me when, I'm, when, when I misspeak. But what I found fascinating was Biddy earned her freedom in California... Um, Thirteen months before the Dred Scott, Dred Scott case, right, and we all know what happened to mm-hmm. poor old Mr. Dred Scott. And what I also learned was, other African Americans in California after Biddy sought their freedom through the courts and were denied it. So, what when you think about, you know, it's easy to. Sort of, we, we like to turn people into heroes in this country, and there's nothing wrong with it because it's inspiring and it gives people a north star to look to. But when you think about it, I don't know that Biddy would have thought of herself as a hero at that point. They're living under this this um, very threatening time. There was this latent threat. You didn't know who was going to knock on your door and tell you, "Guess what? You know, you're not you're not a free person." What what, what do you think that, how do you think that uncertainty sort of drove the decisions um, African-Americans in Los Angeles might have made at that time? Or just how did it taint their whole... The whole view of their universe.
2: Well, I think the the one thing that people tend to overlook with this story of her pursuing her freedom is the love story between Mm -hmm. her daughter and Robert Owens. Mm -hmm. I mean, I have a daughter. She tells me she's in love with someone and she wants to be with that person. If I think that person is good for her, I'm going to move heaven and earth to make it happen. So I think that gave her an edge that maybe other people didn't have and the prominence of the Owens family Mm -hmm. and Judge Hayes himself and how he looked at all Mm -hmm, of this. mm -hmm. Uh, So she had a number of things uh, working in her favor Mm -hmm. that other people may not have had at that time.
0: I I read a little bit about Judge Hayes, and again, I'm not an expert on him, but we do know that, as Biddy said in her performance, her first lawyer quit because mm-hmm. of a death threat. Mm-hmm. So I have to imagine the judge had his share of death threats, too. Yeah, and he wasn't happy about that from what I've read. Right, So right. He's like, not in my court. Right? right. sure he felt very offended by that. And obviously he had a, he had a heart for Biddy and her family. Mm-hmm. Um, you can imagine the pressure on him to just go with the status quo and just say, yeah, sure, you know, you know court dismissed. Yeah. And for him to actually say, no, 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 she's free and her family's free and, and you know, Leave her alone, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, had to be a pretty bold move on his part. It's just a shame it didn't translate into other.
2: I've thought a lot about Judge Hayes, and from what I've read, he seemed to be his own thinker. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, Dr. Griffin was his relative. I think he was the brother oh, of his God, wife. Yeah. Ah. So he had internal support. Uh, but I think more than anything, he he wanted to chart his own course. Okay. So he may not have have been as influenced by what other people
0: thought as we might at first be led to I believe. Did that. Yeah. And we're going to talk a little bit more about the doctor Michelle mentioned, the mm-hmm. doctor and her performance. But we'll we gonna we'll reference back to him in a minute. Um, interesting. It's a lot of dynamics. Certainly a lot of uncertainty mm-hmm. for, for the folks in that time period. Um, you know, we talk about anxiety being an issue today. Can you imagine anxiety back then? <laughs> Are you kidding? You don't <laughs> so, know where you're going to be. No, literally, you don't know where you're going to be. Um, so, Michelle, I want to ask you um, a question about your performance. As I referenced, you were you had a very busy week, the week that we shot that a couple weeks before this, the, um, before this conversation. You had just portrayed a 13-year-old boy in the Watsons Go to Birmingham, and I had mm-hmm. the, the privilege to get to see you in that performance. And to see you go from... The 13-year-old boy, which, which you nailed. My I wife see. was like, that's Michelle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's Michelle. You'll see her later when she plays an elderly woman. Um, you did a really fantastic job. Thank with you. And I think I saw you on a Sunday, and we filmed your performance of Biddy on a Thursday. So yeah. So we did not have a lot of time uh, to prepare. Um, and so... How did you, like, what was your process of, as an actress to, to do the 13-year-old, to, to portray a 13-year-old boy knowing that you're going to be portraying a middle-aged woman? How did you make that work?
1: Um, it's helpful to kind of take them step by step, and one at a time, and kind of separate them. Um, they are both um, acting characters and... Um, acting jobs that I did have to do but it was helpful for me to kind of put them in two different head spaces and so after Sunday was done that was our closing show mm-hmm. and after that show ended now it was time for me to I was focusing on Biddy especially during rehearsals while I was also performing with also being Byron mm-hmm. but as soon as the closing show was over I kind of got the opportunity to kind of just use those three days before the performance to kind of just deepen the character work for Biddy and kind of figure out who she was mm-hmm. and how I meshed with her and so that was really exciting. Um, I've had a couple other times where there are in classrooms we have two different theater classes and you have one character in this class one character in this class and those classes could be back to back and so just kind of making sure you separate it and leave the other character on the side until you're done with that first one um, is kind of really helpful because then it allows you to really use everything you have for each character. Mm
0: -hmm. But it's interesting to hear you say you sort of kept the other one in your in the back, of your yeah. Room. Like you didn't yeah. completely ignore. No,
1: you can't completely ignore it because then you use all the work that you built up for that you already have. Mm-hmm. And so I got to keep. I had to keep Biddy there, um, and she was always there. But I had to really focus in and hime in on Byron until I was finished with that character.
0: That's great. So I, again, something that people wouldn't know without with me saying it. I met you almost a year ago. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it was just fantastic. I felt. I really I went home and told my wife about how inspired I was. Um, by Jared and by you, um, Jared played Peter Biggs mm-hmm. um, last quarter, and, and I just remember we we told you about the you know what we had planned, and it was kind of harebrained, it wasn't really baked, and we were just kind of figuring it out, and you were like, yeah, I'll do it.
1: <laughs> yeah, that sounded awesome. Um, I'm all for. I like when voices are heard just in general. Um, I like to think of myself as a social activist in my own life. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I like when I can learn new things. Um, I didn't know about Biddy before, and it's amazing what I do know now and how much closer I feel to her, mm-hmm. especially because she is an African-American woman, and I'm an African-American woman, and we already have many connections just with being both African-American. Mm-hmm. Right. And so it was very awesome to kind of allow her voice to come out through me um, and so that other people could know her story and know her path and kind of connect that to what's going on with life right now and things like that. And so it was really awesome to like hear the opportunity. And like you said, we didn't know how we were going to do it and like what character I was going to do yet. But it was just nice to hear um, that you guys were very passionate and to see how passionate you guys were about the work that you were doing. And so that made me more willing and open to being a part of what you were doing.
0: Mm-hmm. So getting back to, to Biddy's story, um, so the latter half of the 19th century, I'm a huge booster of California, so I had to throw this question in there. Yeah, but, yeah. but I believe it could be true. <laughs> um, I think it was the, California was a relatively conducive um, environment for black entrepreneurs after the Civil War. And I have to underline the word relative. It mm-hmm. wasn't nirvana. There was all kinds of problems. We've already mentioned some of them. There was, there was uncertainty that, that was astounding. But it, was, but it was better than some of the other places in our country. So in 1856, Charles marries um, Biddy's daughter, Ellen. Uh, they went on to be a very successful couple in their own right. Um, you know, Charles built upon his father Robert's business uh, in, in, in um, very admirable ways. But I found something interesting that I read that Robert Owens wrote. And I didn't get the date in here, but I'm assuming he wrote it in, probably in the, in the 1850s, mm-hmm. early before the Civil War. And he wrote and this was in a newspaper colored men who want to better their condition and enjoy every political right as american citizens should come to the golden west mm-hmm. and when i read that it made me feel it made me feel good as a california entrepreneur because even back then people excuse me people could see California, for what it was, we, you know, we weren't perfect, and we're still not perfect. There's, there's still a lot of issues that we have with race and, 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 and lack of diversity. But at least even back then, the idea that you could come here and people wouldn't judge you necessarily by your color of your skin—they really would say, "What are you here to? What are you here to do? What are you, what are you here to contribute?" And let's—you know—you're allowed to come into this family if you're a contributor. And I noticed he kind of said that in the way he—he he, he, he kind of implicitly said that if, you're, if you come here ready to work this is a good place for you to come, the West. So it just gave me a little bit of an idea of his mindset. I'd love to hear, because you're much closer to, to the history, does, is that consistent with what you think of when you think of Charles and when you think of um, Robert and, and the way they built their businesses? It does it surprise you to hear that he would write something like that in a newspaper?
2: No, it doesn't surprise me, but I think the part that he may have left out that's implied is if you have vision. Mm because his father was able to purchase their freedom in Texas and and purchase the entire family and move them to California That's Robert's father? Yeah. Oh, so I didn't understand. it that. was it you know that took a certain type of vision sure. to to even conceive of of wanting to do that. Yep. I mean I'm sure most slaves did were not happy being slaves but they didn't really see a way out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that was the problem. And they managed to find a way out. Um, so I think it's That was what he felt, that this was an opportunity. It's interesting because Du Du Bois wrote something very similar to that in, I think, the 1950s. I can't paraphrase it right now, but it was essentially he was saying California is a land of opportunity. Mm -hmm. And that's what fed the great migration. Mm -hmm. But um, I think a lot of the men, particularly the men that founded the church with Biddy, they all were relatively successful.
0: Mm -hmm. And I'm going to ask you in a minute about some of those about some of those folks in, in more specific terms. Uh, you know, when I when I when I think about this period in history, it's a shame that the migration following the the Civil War wasn't more westward and less northern. Nothing nothing wrong with Chicago and Philadelphia and Baltimore and Boston. Wonderful, better opportunities than the South. But it just it, I think it was just too far and too expensive for.
2: Legions well, I mean, of they people. were industrial hubs too. There were mm-hmm. jobs. We right. were still kind of agricultural, true. And if you were a slave, why would you want to leave right, one field right. and go to another? I want to pick. You know, you want to go, exactly. There. You want to go someplace where you feel like you can really make a living. Hadn't thought of it that true. way.
0: Yeah. Well, let me ask you about um, Biddy's relationship with Doctor Griffin. So we know from from the reenactment or from the soliloquy that Doctor Griffin played a pretty important role in, mm-hmm. in Biddy's life. Uh, again, I'm not super close to the history, but we know that that um, Biddy had some. Uh, medical training, by because she had to care for Robert Smith's wife Rebecca. Mm-hmm. Apparently, she wasn't the healthiest woman no. on the planet, right? So she was doing that amongst all the other stuff she had to do. Um, do we know, or to what extent do we know the role that Dr. Griffin played in her in her medical education? We know that she, he took her on the rounds with him. Right. But do we know much beyond that? I
2: think, and I, you know, I can't prove this, but just from everything that I've read. And I also had the opportunity to go to the Banning Museum in, in Wilmington. Mm. And the curator there, who at the time was Michael Sanborn, explained to me that Biddy and Ellen, not Ellen, Harriet would come down to Wilmington and stay for months at a time mm. because Banning's wife was sickly also. Oh, great. So I think these introductions to these powerful people came through mm. Griffin. Mm. And that was that, that furthered her renown.
0: So was Griffin from back east as well? I think he was from Missouri. Oh, ah, okay. Yeah. I didn't realize their association yeah. went that far back. Yeah,
2: I think he was from Missouri. Okay and uh, that was why I think how he remembered I think he remembered Peter Biggs. From, from him, Missouri. From Peter's
0: time in right. Missouri. Okay. Do we know um, to what extent Biddy and Peter Biggs had any I'm relationship? I'm curious about that. that be I'm fun sure to know? they
2: knew each yeah, other. Uh, but Big seems like, um, how do I want to say, say describe him in polite company? He seems a, a bit of a character. Oh yeah. And, but he made Last his way. Ceremony. Yeah. He, he made his way. Uh, but I'm sure Biddy knew him because Biddy went to the jails to treat people with smallpox. Mm, mm. At that time in downtown Los Angeles, there were a number of brothels. I'm sure she treated the women there. Sure. So um, she was in and out of the Pico House with Pio Pico, mm-hmm. and she was probably in and out of the Bella Union as well. So I'm sure she knew. Which was next Peter. door
0: to Peter's, right?
2: Salon. Or well, he was in his salon was in the Bella Union, in the, right? Okay, so. He may have even attended the early church services at some point, you know. Yep. But I, I haven't read anything that any ver- that validates the fact that they actually knew each other. But given the community at that time, I'm sure they knew each they other. They had to. I mean, yeah. as
0: Michelle said, there was 60 people in the census yeah. or something yeah. that, that identified yeah. as I'm sure they knew American. each other. I mean-
2: it would be interesting to kind of research that further and see. I, I wonder what, uh, and we'd love to get Biddy's off-the-record take of Mr. Biggs. I'm
0: sure she'd, he, she wouldn't have picked him for a son-in-law, No, no, no. no. <laughs> No, no, but I don't she, I'm think sure she, she knew him yeah and your point about the church makes sense that mm-hmm. she would have probably wanted to draw him into that church mm-hmm, and, yeah. and, for a number of reasons so Michelle enough, another uh, question for you about your portrayal I understand that you maybe drew a little bit on your grandmother um, in 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 trying to find that voice, have you had a chance to talk to your grandmother about this experience, or
1: um, she's actually passed away? Oh, um okay. this, sorry. This last year. Um, no, it's okay. Um, but going to her house and knowing and learning about her history, um, a lot of her. Um, Her and my my great-grandma, a lot of their family was from Louisiana, Mm, mm. and so they have a lot of similarities with how they traveled, um, how they were treated, and the kind of opportunities that they had, and so it's just, it was always fun to sit in the living room with her and kind of just hear her rant on about her life, and how it was, and just hear her talk, and the way she explained things, and the people who she talked about, and so that was kind of the connection that I felt when i'm um, trying to connect myself to biddy i saw a lot of my um elders in her and so th- it was very interesting to kind of connect it like the voice and um just how she her outlook on life because mm-hmm. similarly um my grandma um my great grandma and my great grandpa they ended up being very successful um because they had that kind of Biddy determination and they pushed through all their obstacles and things like that because they didn't have a great life. They didn't have many opportunities um, when they were my age and younger and even a little bit older. Um, And so it was very cool to kind of draw back to my great grandma and her family and kind of connect her to Biddy.
0: That's wonderful. I know she'd be proud of you. I know your folks yeah, are proud I of you. Yeah, I hope they, so. When they see this, when they see this performance, yeah. I know they're going to be very, very, very proud of you. So I have another question um, for you, Jackie. So Biddy, as we mentioned, co-founded the first American Methodist Episcopal Church, or FAME, uh, in 1872. Um, it is now the oldest, and is it the largest or one of the I know it's one of the largest, one of the largest. churches in, in Los Angeles mm-hmm. to this date. Yes. So we're talking about 130 years later, 140 years later. Do you know what her motivation was? I know that she was having church in her home. Um, what was her motivation to um, to start Fame? And what do we know about the other co-founders of the church? Well, I think her motivation probably
2: was they wanted to have their own church. Uh, so although, when you say
0: their own church as a distinguished from white churches, right? Or, okay.
2: Um, because Biddy actually belonged to Fort Street United Methodist, which was a predominantly white church. But I think the men who were the trustees, Jeremiah Redding, Oscar Smith, um, John Hall, Robert Owens, uh, John Ballard, uh, and I'm leaving somebody's name off. But I think they probably went to her and said, look, we need to have our own church for our own people. Mm-hmm. Uh, black churches are peculiarly different Very from white churches. So. And we address certain issues that we address in uh, black churches that don't get addressed in a predominantly white church. So I think they, she may have been, I don't want to say coerced, but persuaded. And she probably thought it was a good idea. Mm-hmm. And... Um, that's how they got started. Do you think
0: they went to her because of her energy, her, because she could organize people she around She could organize
2: it? it, and she had money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, let's just be real. Okay. Although I think it was John Hall who lived next door to Dr. Kurtz, and Dr. Per- Kurtz owned the land for the first church that they bought.
0: Ah, okay.
2: And I think Biddy paid, paid for that land and also paid the taxes and paid the
0: minister. Wow. Yeah so she put him in business. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> That's Man. awesome, yeah. So you, you were you named some of the other co-founders. I'm assuming they were all in their own right um, successful. successful and mm-hmm. um, do do we know some of the things that you, they were doing? Louis
2: Green is particularly interesting to me because he was a barber in the Pico House. Oh, okay. And he sued the uh, sued LA city for the right to vote and won. Wow. And then after he had won the right to vote, systematically, all of the other men did the same. Oh, and they were able to person start voting. each had to sue? Well, I don't think they had to sue, but each one was a- able to vote after okay. that because okay. it was like a landmark case. Right. Um, he also took in as an apprentice Hannah's son, Henry. Who was the issue
0: Hannah
2: Hannah is the other slave yeah. that biddy was f- was friends with okay, and she was she had just had an a child at the time of the trial and was not able to yes. Yes. to participate that. Yes. and that child was the child of Robert Smith oh great and so Lewis Green took him in as an apprentice ah. so he's particularly interesting to me, um, his life and why he took
0: the boy in and all of that. A mm-hmm. question for you, Biddy, um, for one of the students. So the student is asking, um, you know, Biddy defied the odds and, and, and fought against the status quo. And that was a status quo that was playing for keeps in many cases. I mean, this was serious business, right? You didn't just go up against the status quo um, without some fear of retribution. The student is wondering, you know, what can we learn from um, from her experience, for a millennial today that might feel like they want to go up against the status quo. Like, what, what, any inspiration that you have or any words that you think Biddy might have shared with somebody to do who today, as a 20-year-old, is wondering, how do I tell my parents I don't want to be a doctor? How do I tell my parents I don't want to be an engineer? Whatever their version of going up against the status quo is.
1: Well, I think that some advice I'd give for people in the future would be to do what you think is right. Um, No matter what obstacles are put in front of you, you know in your heart and you know when you know that feeling you get when you really want to do something that is you know is right but it's different from everybody else. I think follow that instinct. Always follow that instinct with determination and hard work and you'll get to where you need to be. You'll pass those obstacles because they're only there to stop you and fear isn't going to help you. And I think that I got where I got because I made sure that whenever I felt really strongly that what I was about to do was the right thing to do, I didn't stop myself because it was going to be hard.
0: Mm -hmm. I couldn't agree with you more. I think it's easy in life to find reasons to not do something. It's harder in life to dig deep and say, "I know this is the right thing." Might be a hard thing, but I'm going to do it anyway. So, thank you. I think that is something that we can learn from Biddy's experience.
2: I wanted to just this word "millennial" gives me trouble <laughs> um, because I can remember when I was your age, we were thought of as being radical. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was, you know, the bra burning generation. Right. Um, I don't think young people should allow Madison Avenue to put labels on you. Don't allow them to define who you are. Mm-hmm. The only difference between what you may be feeling about how you're going to tackle this is technology. You have a phone. You have an iPad. Mm-hmm. You can communicate quicker. Mm-hmm. But basically, all, what you want is to be recognized and appreciated and to be able to chart your own course. Yeah. And you shouldn't be, allow other people to label you
0: yep. because it's misleading.
2: Yeah. It's, it's very
0: misleading. Oh, it's very misleading. It's been going on generation after generation. I, I think it's a, we're sort of an interesting dichotomy where some of the tools make it easier to chart your own path. And in some ways, they make it more difficult because mm-hmm. yeah. with social media, like, you know, in our day, mm-hmm. like people weren't tracking us 24-7. Right. Like you could actually right. do something and, and, and all your friends didn't You had to know. go home to get the
2: message. <laughs> right. Yeah, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You didn't
0: answer the phone. Where are you? Like, yeah. I at my house with the phone. <laughs> right. <laughs> so so in, in some ways, it's made it harder. I think in some ways, it's made it easier. Mm-hmm. But, I, but I think what you said, uh, Biddy, is timeless. It's, it's you know what's usually you know what's right in your heart. Mm-hmm. And you're just looking for ways to maybe not follow that path because it's not the easiest path. And you're looking for validation from other people so that you can do something that you yeah. know isn't the right path. But Easier said than done, but I do, but I do think that's great advice. Uh, Jackie, I have another uh, question about um, Biddy and her wealth. So we think that in today's terms, her, her, on paper, her wealth was probably 7 to $10 mm-hmm. million, something like that. But the land she owned spring street mm-hmm. i mean this is downtown los angeles for those of you who don't know los angeles we're talking about the wall street of la right. these are where some of the most expensive class a business towers exist today would be worth billions of dollars and she started buying her first piece of property um as michelle showed us when she was like about 40 mm-hmm. so this it was, took 10 years to save to, to save money up to to for that it. one property right Um, So she realized that the transfer of wealth across multiple generations was was going to be facilitated by owning land. Obviously, Robert Owens was very uh, instrumental in in helping her understand that. What I find interesting is today, and again, this is not my area of expertise, but when I read things by social scientists and they say that one of the reasons, not the only reason, but one of the reasons for the black-white wealth gap is this lack of property ownership. And this fact that, you know, whites from, I don't know, 20s or 30s have been passing homes and properties along, and it hasn't been as prevalent in the black community. I'd love to hear your thoughts about um, Biddy's children and her grandchildren and what they did with that wealth, but also just in general, just your thoughts on how prescient that was and how unfortunate that it it, it wasn't more widespread, that this philosophy that Biddy and the Owens uh, family were living any, so I'm, it's an ill-formed question, but if you want to talk a little bit about her children and her grandchildren and what they did with that fundamental wealth, and then any other thoughts you have in general about the
2: well, the- I think Robert was really the financial mastermind. Mm-hmm. I mean, he parlayed; uh, he was part of Allen's worth and everything else. Uh, and I think a lot of the money was lost during the crash, uh, which a lot of people lost yes. money during the crash. But were they um, able to hold on to the? property? The real estate? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Interestingly enough, when my daughter was in high school, well, not only high school, but in preschool, she went to school with the great, 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 great granddaughters. But I didn't know at the time oh, the who owners. they were of, of Biddies.
1: Oh, yeah, oh but I didn't
2: But I didn't know oh, at the time cool. who they were. And then they reconnected in high school. And I used to actually give them a ride home from school every day. <laughs> um, and I've since reconnected with, with uh, Cheryl in particular, and I'm not sure where, you know, what the wealth situation is right now, mm. but I think one of the things that I would say happened in the black community with wealth, integration destroyed a lot of black businesses. Mm. Um, Las Vegas is a classic example. Uh, at one time, there was a thriving black business community in Las Vegas, and when integration opened up, it just fizzled away. Um, and I think that is probably the case for a lot of families. They sold the original property, moved somewhere else, mm-hmm. and they didn't keep the original property. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you, you, you don't have that... Land passing down through generations. Right,
0: that's that more contiguous. Exactly, like the grandfather exactly. I yeah. was referencing. He never had a lot of money, yeah. but he did own but a he house. Yeah. He did pass whatever he got from that house exactly. to my dad. You know, so. And
2: then as family with the migration, when people like in my father's family, they moved. to, My father moved to California. The other brothers stayed in the South. Um, my father didn't really want the land. Mm. He saw no point in keeping it, so Chelsea he sold his portion to ah, one of the other brothers. Right. So I think
0: there was a lot of that too. I wonder if it came, and I'm not, I'm not an expert here, so I'm really asking a question that I don't know the answer to. But I'm wondering if in the South, because the land was not as valuable i mean you know malibu think about yeah. the value of malibu property versus the value of a farm in georgia or something right I and mean, the relative increase is not anywhere close right so in the 1800s to now with malibu whereas the farm it's gone up some mm-hmm. maybe that was part of that mindset is land wasn't as 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 it didn't have the appreciation in other parts of the country that it had in California. And Biddy saw that, yeah. that influx well, of people wanting to buy land.
2: I think a lot of slaves saw it, to be honest mm. with you. If you were a slave, you saw what happened when the slave owner got in trouble. He either sold land or he sold slaves. Mm-hmm. So you knew the value of land. So I think, and that probably was a driver for her in terms of this accumulation. And then she was in Los Angeles at a time where it was booming.
0: But, so she but a lot of people didn't buy land. So we, we, right. I live in yeah. Santa Barbara. Right. And people say, oh, Santa Barbara, you, you know, you're so lucky you've seen the price go up. But you still had to be willing to pay the price at exactly. that time. Initially. Which yeah. seemed yeah. expensive then, right? Exactly. So I don't want to take anything away from Biddy, even though the prices have gone up astronomically. $200 was still $200 exactly. back then. Or exactly. 250, 250 was what she paid for the first yeah. property. Um but yeah, it's there's, obviously it's a very complex dynamic, but with with land being one of the aspects of this of this wealth transference. I'm just I'm just astounded that this was something that she saw a hundred some years before most people really saw it, or in the Owens as well. Because lots of people came to California, lots of people came to Los Angeles, and they didn't all buy property.
2: Well, it's like lots of people came to California for the gold rush. How many of them actually right. made money in the gold? Levi's, rush, you know? <laughs> right, he did pretty well. He did very well. <laughs>
0: Um, in your words, I mean, I can certainly, I could articulate my reasoning, but I'd love to hear in your words why it's important for us to talk about African-American pioneers of the West. What do you you see as their contribution, and why should we be doing this?
2: Well, I think you need to talk about African-Americans in history, period. I mean, we've been so systematically left out of the history, and this is what I tell my grandkids all the time. They live in New Jersey. Mm -hmm. And I said, tell me about the man that, that Um, now his name escapes me, Edison, the man that helped Edison, his assistant. I said, you need to know who that is. Mm -hmm. Um, Because if you don't, uh, and our work, particularly with foster youth, you have a kid who grows up thrown into the system. He may be in a group home. He may or or she may or may not know who the father is. Their mother has a drug problem Mm because that's a common denominator with these kids is drug abuse of the parents. And if on the TV, All you see is black people in really a a very negative light. And you know nothing about your own history. How are you supposed to gain the wherewithal to change or direct your life? You have to have role models. So I think if it was just told, if the history was just told accurately, Mm -hmm. not asking for any special compensation, just tell it accurately. And Biddy Mason, Peter Biggs, John Ballard, they were all a part of the founding of Los Angeles.
0: Right. Yeah. Well, I want to talk to you a little bit more about um, about the foundation and about your work. You mentioned, um, obviously, uh, your main mission, which is which is helping um, children in foster care. I want to point something out. So the, I love the tag phrase, which I don't know if the camera can pick it up, but it's promises are worth keeping. Mm-hmm. I mean, what an apt... Promises are for keeping. Uh, excuse right. me, are for keeping. What, um, what an apt tagline when you're, when you're talking about a woman who made her impact 140 years ago with her promises mm-hmm. to her community and how you're carrying those forward. I'd love to hear anything else behind that tagline and then tell us a little bit about what are some of the specific things you're, you're doing at retail and trying to get the word out um, and then obviously how people can, can help. Our primary mission is to serve foster care.
2: In Los Angeles County, Los Angeles has the largest population of foster care in the in the nation. There are thirty thousand kids in the system. Wow. Thirty thousand kids in the system, and on average, you you have about three thousand kids emancipating out.
0: Are they aging out, or yeah, are they getting out? aging out?
2: Uh, so they're and not necessarily
0: finding great. No,
2: I mean for the ones that you know, we have we give scholarships, so we have access to kids that are you know going on to higher education. But the average uh, youth is. Depending on what their experience was in the system, if they were lucky enough to stay in one group home with a good foster mother, they may be able to kind of tread water and, and do well. But mm-hmm. we have kids that come to us that have gone to 10 high schools. Yeah. I mean, how can you have any kind of foundation mm-hmm. with that kind of background? So what we do currently is we do events that are specifically designed for foster youth. Uh, Next month, on April 13th, we have a resource fair where we bring in service providers, colleges, and employers. Mm -hmm. Um, And when each youth comes to the registration table, they have to get what we call a passport. Each agency Mm. is listed there. You have to go to each table, get it stamped, Mm -hmm. hear the spiel, and move to the next table. When you've completed all of those tables and you come into the house and you shop for free clothing, and free hygiene items. And then we also have a uh, vision board room. And we have this wonderful volunteer, Frances McNeely, that runs a vision board. I think she's in her 80s, but she's like a, di- like a battery. She doesn't <laughs> stop. She has a kid singing, and they just love her. And then this year, we're going to have a storytelling workshop. So I'm ignorant. What's a vision board? You take a piece of poster board. You cut out p- uh, pictures from a magazine and which, how you want your life to be. Ah. Nice. And
0: it's yours. So it's a way to envision the future exactly. in a concrete way. So
2: we do that. We give scholarships. Uh, we always recognize Biddy's birthday on August 15th. And then on Thanksgiving Day, we do a formal sit-down Thanksgiving dinner mm. on Thanksgiving Day nice. because we're trying to teach yeah. traditions.
0: Right,
2: right. Uh, and, and these kids would... They don't necessarily get that. The right. first year we did it, we did it potluck because we didn't have any money. And uh, when we were cleaning up and sitting around the table, there was a kid sitting next to me, and he was drawing, because we always do have crafts, because a lot of these kids are very creative, but they never get a chance to explore it. Mm -hmm. And so I said, did you get any clothes? And he said, yes, because we always have clothes. And I said, well, where are they? He said, they're in the chapel. I said, well, you should get your stuff and keep it with you. And he said, no, I'm okay. So about half an hour later, he was still sitting there. And I said, did you ever go back and get your clothes? He said, ma'am, I'm all right. I'm just enjoying listening to you guys talk. Mm -hmm. And I realized Mm -hmm. that if he was in quote, a normal family, this is what would be going on on Mm -hmm. Thanksgiving day. He would Mm -hmm. be listening. So then we realized we don't need to be making these, you know, cooking this food, get somebody else to cook the food. We need to spend the time with the kids. Mm -hmm. And so that's,
0: that's what we do. And tell us about the rocking chair. The rocking so, chair, so you know, the logo. So not everybody can see the yeah. logo has a rocking chair, which we were able to, yeah. to bring into the performance.
2: Well, the rocking chair, the only pictures that we have of Biddy Mason's house show rocking chairs on the front porch. So I remember when I showed that to the pastor, he said, Jackie, you really want a rocking chair for a logo? <laughs> I said, a lot of these kids need to be rocked. Ah. A rocking chair is very comforting.
0: Right, right. Yeah,
2: and uh, in the logo itself, the Owen Mason is a wagon wheel. Ah. So that symbolizes the yep. trek.
0: Yep, makes sense.
2: And our website is www.biddymason.com. Definitely. And, and,
0: and I, know, I love that you mentioned the rocking chair on the porch. What I've heard anecdotally was um it was it was said that it was not uncommon for people to be sitting on that porch eating a meal that she gave them. Right. So it's one thing to write a check and sort yeah. of like don't bother me like which is fine. Write checks. We want your checks. But you know what I mean? It's one thing to not really get your hands dirty but just sort of help them by by monetary standards. But I think it's another thing to cook somebody a meal, a stranger. Right, yeah. And just say, you know what, just have a seat, and and, and I'll bring you out some food. Because the
2: day she died, the stories I've heard is that there were people lined up for Mm -hmm. help. Dad. The day she died, and they actually oh, had to turn really? her away because she, you know, she had passed on. Wow. But that whole thing of sharing food together and talking, I mean, can you imagine how many people she counseled yeah. in the process of treating them? Yeah.
1: yeah.
0: Well, to your point about a therapist. Yeah.
1: yeah. And I also think she would have been even bigger. Um, I definitely think she would have still been doing her community work, um, and she would have possibly been um, doing something similar to what Jackie um, is doing, like having a foundation and organization that is larger than just herself, where she has a group of people helping her as well that have the same idea and care for people that she does. That she can help on more of, on a larger level.
0: Well, you could argue with the AME Church. Yeah, she did that, right? Yeah, so well, she, yeah. she able... started
2: an orphanage and a school, which is the reason because we're only taking one portion of her philanthropy.
0: Foster care. Yeah, there's that whole other stuff. Well, tell out me because you know, I, 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 that was one of my potential questions. Tell me about that a little bit. What what other things did she do besides? Well,
2: she started a school for black children. Okay. Um, she helped so many people. Um, it's just, it's impossible to know how many people she really helped, given the locale of where she was located. Mm-hmm. And, and people knew that they could come to her for help. Mm-hmm. Uh, she helped First Day and Me all through those infancy years.
0: Well, it truly is an honor for you to come up here. And I know it wasn't, um, you know, you had to take a lot of time out of your day and, and to make it work. and We really, the really appreciate it. The train ride that. is worth it. The train <laughs> ride. Hopefully we got some good ocean views. The train ride between Los Angeles and Santa Barbara is it's very nice. It's very, very nice. It still nice. takes a commitment of time, and, and, and we, we really appreciate that. I'll wear the button with pride. I pre- I appreciate you giving that to me. And, Michelle, again, just thank you for being a yes and being so positive, and you brought such energy to this performance. and and all the work you did with the students that we didn't capture on camera, but just the questions you fielded, that they fielded, uh, that you fielded from them, excuse me. Um, I know they were inspired by that. There was a lot of really positive feedback after the
1: performance. Yeah, and thank you so much for the opportunity. It was a great opportunity for me to learn something new and also just uh, another challenge that was opened up to me as an actress and then also just as a person to do something that was different and um, to open up, the opportunity for another voice to be heard, another story to be told, and that was awesome.
0: Yeah, if if a handful of people Google Biddy and start reading about her, and then these other people that were also, um, you know, important people in their own right, then we've done our job.
1: Right. And
0: plus, I can tell people I knew you back when. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Yeah, hopefully. Thank you so much. Yes. Yes, thank you.